Every year, courts hand out sentences of life without parole to people convicted of serious crimes. Our guest today was one of those people, and he'll tell us what that was like. And, with his sentence now commuted, what his life is like on the outside after 43 years. That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your total justice geek and personal guide to our chaotic criminal justice system. And still so incredibly glad to have that day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Before we get into the episode, we want you to become a member and a supporter of what we do here on Criminal Injustice. Just go to our Patreon link at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice where you can join and get access to extra content. First hundred people to join get a signed copy of my 2012 book, Failed Evidence, Why Law Enforcement Resists Science. The roots of today's episode go back decades to a Pittsburgh neighborhood called Homewood. In the 1950s and 60s, Homewood was a solid, diverse neighborhood of mostly working and middle-class people. It was the place where the Weidman family lived. Two boys grew up in that family, John Edgar and Robert. They were about 10 years apart in age, John older and Robert younger, but grew up in the same family, same neighborhood, in the same social context. At some point, their paths diverged. John Edgar, a gifted athlete and superior student, was named a Rhodes Scholar, one of the first two African-American Rhodes Scholars. He and his achievements were featured in Life magazine. Robert chose another way of navigating life, relying on wit and charm to get by and get the most for the least effort, learning the ways of the street. John Edgar Wideman became an acclaimed writer and professor of English, while Robert Weidman became a drug addict, a drinker, and a small-time criminal. Robert's life came to a terrible inflection point in November of 1975. With two other men, Robert was involved in a scheme to lure three others to buy a truckload of stolen TVs. There were no TVs. The whole thing was a setup for a robbery. When Robert and his partners ordered the others to give up their money at gunpoint, one of them ran. One of Robert's partners shot the man in the back, and he later died. Robert had not fired the fatal shot, but he was also charged with murder under Pennsylvania's felony murder rule, a form of second-degree murder. He was convicted, and the sentence was life in prison without possibility of parole. At 25, he went to prison for life. Now, when Robert had been in prison for some years. Robert's brother, the writer John Edgar, wrote a book called Brothers and Keepers about the brothers' divergent lives and the horrors of prison as seen through the eyes of Robert. The book included poems, letters, and first-person accounts written from Robert's perspective. The book garnered considerable national attention, but one thing it did not do was result in Robert's freedom. He was on a life without sentence, and he remained in prison. Now, After some years of serving that sentence, gradually, Robert Weidman changed. He became a person driven to make of himself what he could and to help others. As he came to grips with his crime and his circumstances, he began to serve others. And then, last year, On July 5th of 2019, something almost unimaginable happened. His life without parole sentence was commuted. After he had served 43 years, he was free. This audio is from WTAE Television in Pittsburgh. A Pittsburgh man convicted of second-degree murder in a 1975 killing will soon be a free man. This is file video from a hearing in 1998 in Allegheny County. PA Governor Tom Wolf commuted the sentence of 68-year-old Robert Weidman today. Defense attorneys say he was not the trigger man in the death of Niccolo Moreno. The parole board voted to pardon him last month, and today Weidman learned he will be released. He's with us today to discuss his life while in prison and out 
and to talk about a new book to which he has contributed. Robert Weidman, that formerly incarcerated person on a life without parole sentence, now lives in Pittsburgh. While incarcerated, Mr. Weidman earned an Associate of Arts degree in Engineering Technology and over 20 credits from the University of Pittsburgh. He also taught algebra and trigonometry for the university's accredited prison program before that program ended. Mr. Weidman also served as a mentor to many young men enrolled in educational and other settings while in prison and also sponsored over 100 men in Narcotics Anonymous. Mr. Weidman's brother, the noted author John Edgar Weidman, is credited as the author of Brothers and Keepers, that book I mentioned earlier, but both of them have discussed the book as something they wrote together. The book is still studied and read in high schools and colleges all over the country. Mr. Weidman was one of the authors, along with five others who are serving life sentences and some other folks, of the new book, Life Sentences, Writings from Inside an American Prison, published by Belt Publishing. We'll put a link to it up on our website. Mr. Weidman has also been part of the Inside Out Prison Program and a member of the Elsinore Benu Think Tank for Restorative Justice in Pittsburgh. During his religious studies while incarcerated, he took the name Farouk, which he goes by now. So let me say, Farouk, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, I'm so glad you could be with us. Now, I've described in the introduction uh, what led to your incarceration. Uh, you say something about this in one of the essays you wrote for this new book. The essay is called Life. Uh, you say that you began to learn very early in your life uh, to take the easy way out, to use charm and quick wit, and you became, quote, good at being manipulative and deceitful, and that this led you to bad patterns of behavior and decision-making. Can you tell us, who was, who was Robert Weidman in his early 20s? What was that person like? Just give us your best picture of who you were. Well, I was a young man, in a lot of ways, caught up in the times of the 60s. You, you can you got to understand that I went from 15 to 20, from 1965 to 1970. And, you know, those, those are the formative years, I would think. Absolutely. And uh, so I grew at that time. I paid attention to all the politics and all the protests and mm -hmm. all the, the people— that were changing the world. And uh, and also, though, I was caught in the streets of Homewood. I was going to school. You know, I went to Peabody High School for a couple years. Sure. And then I went to Westinghouse. You know, uh, it's sad to say, you know, I was teachers always told me I was smart. I would get by without doing homework. I would listen to the lessons, and as long as I got a C or a D, I was happy with it. Uh -huh. I just wanted to get through. Mm -hmm. And so I was this kid that always just wanted to get to the next thing that I wanted mm -hmm. and uh, was willing to manipulate, was willing to con, was willing to uh, get around established rules because I had sort of given up on America and its established rules. I and, see. And uh, what church said, what the teacher said, what mom said, what dad said. I thought I could figure it out on my own. And uh, I figured myself into a pretty good mess. Yeah. So when that moment came, uh, we've described the crime in the introduction. You end up arrested for this crime somewhat later. Yes. And you're in court. And you're guilty. And that sentence comes down on you. Describe that moment. Uh, when I was found guilty, you know, I tell people this all the time. I never in my wildest dreams believed I would stay in prison for the rest of my life. Never. Not until the very end. And, you know, maybe I'll get a chance to tell you about that. But in the beginning, I was on a three-year plan. I thought I was going to get out. I thought, well, I didn't kill anybody. Mm -hmm. They're not going to keep me forever. You know, I knew that's what the sentence said. 
But I knew guys went to prison and studied the law, and I was going to study law, and I was going to find a way out because, you know, I knew maybe I should go to jail for what I did. But life, you know, I didn't shoot anybody, didn't shoot at anybody. Seemed inconceivable that it could really be forever. Yes, especially when you're that young. I I was 25, Mm -hmm. but I was probably 18 in maturity. Yes, yes, and we know very well now that people don't really mature until they're well into their 20s. Yes. Yeah. So you were kind of doubting that it was real uh, in terms of the way that it was explained in court. Um, So then you get to prison as a 25-year-old, what's it like? I mean, you've described it in your essay as uh, uh, like living in an evil gladiator school. Was it really like that? Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was bad. You know, uh, you know, I saw a lot of things happening in prison. You know, it, and early on, it was really bad. You know, uh, you know there was fights every day. Uh, you know, I was in one sense lucky because I was from Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And why did that make a difference? Because I was from Homewood. I was an inner city guy. I knew a lot of people there. Most of the guys I knew up grew up with in Homewood, my age and older. Uh-huh. Went to prison. You know, it was the times we were living in. Uh guys that were out there in the streets doing things, selling drugs, using drugs, just that whole street life. Went to prison. And uh, so, you know, I got there and I knew a bunch of guys. Uh-huh. So I didn't have a lot of pressure to always uh, be worried that someone was going to do something to me because I had friends uh-huh. and I had two uh, co-defendants, as you know, we called each other rap partners. Uh-huh. And uh, we were pretty wild, crazy young guys ourselves. So we were as much for people to watch out for is... You had your own reputation. Yes, and so... Okay, so prison was rough, but at least you were a little bit insulated. Yes, but it was dangerous. It was very dangerous. And at that, in that set of initial years, were you thinking, what can I do with this time? You're just thinking, I'm going to get out, I'm going to get over. What's your mindset? Well, early on, I, I was still into whole street thing the whole drug world kind of thing and at at first at that age as i said i was so immature i really didn't know what to do so i was just taking it day to day you know looking around seeing what we could get into Mm -hmm. could we uh you know in prison you need everything so you know back then there was lots of money and drugs in prison and so we were still sort of in that same world that we were in in the street. You know, a lot of that carried over. The fear and the violence was much higher, and the, and mm. the threat was much greater. Mm-hmm. But those same elements still controlled the yard like they controlled the street. I see. The prison yard were the same sort of atmosphere. So basically the street life continues— uh, but more so. It's kind of amped up. And there you are. And pretty soon it's not three years, it's five years, it's six, it's seven. Um, does it hit you at some point that this is your destiny and maybe life's got to be reconsidered? Well, at quiet times alone in my cell, you know, those things would come back to me. That realization mm-hmm. would hit me. I dreamt that a judge sitting up on a real high bench quite often in those young years, you know, the judge that has sentenced me. And so there was there was this something deep inside of me that was worried that I pretty much kept caged up. I kept him caged up by just going through the motions. Uh, but there was also, I was working on the case you know, I was working on my case. Yes. And, you know, just trying to survive. Uh, and I tell people this all the time. I had a three-year plan for 43 years. <laughs> and I so I was on the three-year plan. It was the first three-year plan. And the three-year plan, 
you know, involved more than just getting out in the courts. I would have left any way I could have left. And that included escapes, you know. And back then, those kind, that kind of talk was prevalent. Uh-huh. You know, guys talked about trying to get out and what kind of moves you could make. And so we thought about that and talked about that. And at the same time, I'm going to the law library. And then there's this other world in the yard where uh-huh. the drugs and the money is flowing and you know you're trying to get in and you're trying to make something happen and the guys want to sit around and smoke weed at night and so you know you had to make it from scratch yeah and so you know living that kind of life took up most of my thinking yeah did did there come a point when you began to say you know the three-year plan is just isn't real and i gotta begin to come to grips with my life well, it came, it was always there. That that thought was always there, but I could never lose hope. You know, uh-huh. none of us can live without hope. That's if right. If we don't have hope, that's right. why do you get up in the morning? Right. If you don't hope that the day will be better or that somebody will love you or that whatever it is that you need in life, that you know, and so there was always, I had to hold on to hope. And I held on to hope Despite the conditions, despite everything that said, man, they're going to keep you for the rest of your life. The sentence says it. People knew it. Eh, but I refused to. Uh, Would not give it up. No, I, I refused to accept that. The stubbornness of the human spirit. Yes. And because if I did, I would have lost hope. And I didn't. I looked around in the prison. You know, prisons are full of. Uh, uh, vice and yes. of all kinds. Mm-hmm. And if you let yourself go all the way into that, it becomes extremely dangerous. Uh, you know, I've seen people get killed for packs of cigarettes. Yeah. And so you couldn't let yourself go all the way in, so you had to keep some way of being sane. And so eventually, after some years, I did what my mother told me. Which was? Boy, get an education while you're in there. Uh-huh. Go to school. Ain't there some programs you can get into? Mm-hmm. And her admonishment on that rang in my ears all the time. And so I eventually started doing that. And, and that was through the PIT program? That was through the PIT program. I see. And uh, and, uh, AC, and uh, c- uh, community college. And you just, dis- I'm sorry, you, you, you describe in the book um, how what really took you was mathematics. Yes. And that that really changed things in the way you thought. Yes. Well, you know, mathematics is the exact science. Yes. You it's come up called. with an answer. Right. And, uh, and so I like that idea. Mm-hmm. That you could put things together in the right way and come up with a solution. And that's kind of what math is. We take measurements or, you know, numbers, uh, uh, stories, and come up with an absolute answer that can be verified and uh, will work every time. And so I kind of needed that sort of discipline to, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. you know, let go of the idea that I could... uh, play my way through yeah the way your life had been you had to turn to something else as yeah. as your as your as your anchor and so this you become very successful at this you earn your your associate's degree you're earning credits with Pitt uh, and you actually become a teacher of mathematics for other incarcerated people well that was the time when I finally realized that I couldn't keep using people. I had to find a way out. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Stop. What, sure. what was the question again? Yeah. I missed it. Uh, no, that's fine. I'll just mark it. Uh, I asked you, that's when you become a teacher for other incarcerated people. Go ahead. Uh, and what I was going to say was that was the greatest thing that happened to me. Besides uh, the fact that I quit using drugs, it was education. Yeah. Uh and when I became a teacher, 
I found out that I could help people and that it felt good. Uh-huh. See, I had been a user all my life. I used everyone and everything. And I was always looking out for me mm-hmm. and looking for a way. How can it benefit you? Yes, everything. Even friendships, relationships, everything. Even family members. Uh, I'm blessed that they still love me. But learning to start teaching. Watching people get excited about what I was showing them. Uh-huh. And seeing how much they appreciated it made me feel better time after time after time. After every class, I would go out of class uh, with a certain excitement, Uh with a guy walking Uh with me Uh and me explaining to him about the quadratic equation or or explaining to him about some word problem he couldn't get. And uh, so it just became... You know, sort of my motto is that whenever I'm feeling bad, the quickest way I can feel better is to help somebody else. So I just kind of dedicated everything to that because, you know, there's not a lot to do in prison. Sure. sure. You know, I used to call it, um, you know, the the men, the walking dead. Sometimes, you know, it was like a graveyard with the walking dead. Right, right. Some people call it the civic death. You're not actually dead, but you might as well be. Yes, so this was something for me to do, and yeah. I could do it most of the time. And you've just you've described mm. teaching in such a beautiful way, right there. And and that really touches me as a I'm a teacher as well. You know, when when you can teach somebody, someone, when you can, I mean, the the old saw is, you know, you see the light bulb go off over their head. Yes. When you can, when they get it, and they say, oh, uh, or you you just see it uh, all of a sudden. There's clarity. Uh, I mean, I don't. I wouldn't say I always succeed, and I'm sure you didn't always. No. But, but to to have that as your life's work, it's mm-hmm. a gift beyond describing. Yes, it is. Yes, yeah. it is. I can see why it turned things <clears throat> around for you. So, uh, let me ask about a particular thing that happened during your time in prison when your brother, the uh, well-known writer John Edgar Wideman, uh, came out with a book. Uh, called Brothers and Keepers. And this book was very much about the two of you, your sort of divergent paths in life, um, and about prison life from your point of view. And uh, very well-known books, still used in schools, colleges, and lots of other places. But I've heard you describe it as the effect in your own life as kind of a double-edged sword. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, in my uh, attempts to get back to court and, and, and being in the prison, all of a sudden, I became famous. In any edge, or in, I went back to court, uh, you know, people said to me, and it was heard around the courthouse by friends and family, mm-hmm. oh, why is he getting this? That's all because of his brother. Uh the guards and the prison officials Everybody. saw me in a different light. Ah. Uh, we were on 60 Minutes, and me and John, uh, about the book. And uh, the next morning, it was unbelievable. I, When we wrote the book, when we did the book together, I never in my wildest dreams that it would take off like it did. Uh-huh. The next morning, after 60 Minutes, the captain is in my cell, acting like we're the best old buddies. Wow. And I never really thought he liked me very much <laughs> <laughs> up until this point. And he got some other call. Yeah, oh, yeah, me and Bob, you know, he's called. And Big celebrity. Yeah. And all of a sudden, that's what it was. I was like a celebrity walking around prison. And some people liked it and liked me. And that never, I didn't even know. And then there was those that were in the background saying, "Man, who is he? You know, this dude. He, uh, you know, well, what is he doing on TV? What's it, what is yeah, it? Yeah. yeah. And uh, so it cut both ways. And then when I went to court, uh, there was so much publicity about. I, I wound up getting a new trial at that time, and there was so much publicity uh, that it was almost impossible for our DA at the time, to let me out. He had just got the job. Right. And uh, so 
it put him in a bad situation. And uh, the the guy whose job everyone said it should have been uh, was on the courthouse steps every evening, 6 o'clock news, interviewing, talking about it should have been his job and how bad a job he's doing and look what's happening in the Weidman case. Oh, he's attacking the DA. He's attacking the DA. And, ah. and you know, every day at the evidentiary hearing that I was having, it went on for almost a month, you could see what we were winning, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually we did. And eventually I was given a bond. To get out. To get out. And... uh I actually rode back to the prison with the bond papers in my hand, ecstatic. Yeah. Like, oh, I finally made it. And this is 20-something years ago that this happened. And uh, the next morning, they called me back down to court. I should have left that night. They made all kind of excuses why I couldn't leave. And uh, yeah, I got bond papers in my hand. The sheriffs came to get me. And the prison wouldn't give me, wouldn't give me to him. Uh, they actually called the clerk of courts. Clerk of courts said, give the prisoner right. to the sheriffs. Do the appropriate thing, yeah. They wouldn't do it. Uh, next morning, they take me back to court, and uh federal magistrate takes the uh, bond back. And eventually, you know, uh, the Supreme Court and— uh, you know, you end I, up I, back there. Yeah, I I, I I I lose the case. It takes two years, and I hate to say things that I can't prove. Mm-hmm. But you know, uh, our DA, and I'm not going to say his name because I don't really hold like any kind of animosity or hatred towards him. Mm-hmm. It would be easy to do. Yes. But, you know, that kind of stuff kills you. That's right. It the, would have never hurt him. Right. If I hated him or had all kind of animosity, it wouldn't hurt him at all. It would hurt me. Bitter, bitterness eats you from the inside. Right. It would just give me ulcers. Yeah. And so I don't. And I can't prove that there's something that happened that stopped me from uh, going out on bond. But the day before, everybody said, you're going to get the bond, and all you got to do is go back down to penitentiary and get your stuff, and you're going to put a bracelet on, and you're going to your sister's house. Between then and the time I got back to the penitentiary to get my stuff, everything changed. Why it changed, I don't know. Was it uh, the other DA that had lost his job on the steps embarrassing the DA? Uh, was it his dad who was... It's on the know, Supreme Court. Yes. The uh, state Supreme Court. Yes. Uh, a lot of things happen that can't be proved. So if my lawyer was here, he'd be ranting and raving. He'd be telling you how much <laughs> it's their fault and that they did this and they did that. But I'm free now. Yeah. I yeah. don't want to call people to task. I don't want to point fingers. Right. What happened 20 years ago happened 20 years ago. Maybe 15 years ago, you might have got me to say some other things. Right. But in the end, even though he opposed me getting out now, I let him go. Yeah. I yeah. let him go. So you could live. So I can live. I, right. I, I don't want to carry that with me. Right. I don't think about that very much. When people ask me, I talk about it as little as possible. And it's something I very seldom ever bring up because I let it go. Right. Uh, my son was murdered while I was in prison. Right. And I don't remember the guy's names who did it. And that's because I let him go. I can't carry that. I I don't want to go and I don't want to go and do nothing to him. I don't want to every time I hear that name say, "Oh, you know." Yeah. I, I can't carry the past that would be painful and it could cause me problems. Uh, so I go on with my life, and so I went on with that. But, yes, it did cause me some harm, the, the uh, celebrity status that yes. it gave me. Uh, but it also caused a lot of joy. You know, it, it brought people to me. Yes. 
it brought the uh, inside out people to me. It, right. it it brought a lot of things to me. It it brought in the end my lawyer Mark Schwartz who really turned the last knob to get me out. You know, he hung with me. Mm-hmm. And he, he came because Caleb Orvis was like a mentor to him. Yes. And you know, Kaylee Warvis knew my brother and knew my family. and He was one of the most famous members of the state legislature, I remember. Yes. Yes. And Kaylee he was Roy determined Irvis. to help me. Yes. And he left that in Mark's heart. Yes. And uh, so, you know, it gave me some things, too. Yes. And, and it also helped. Yes. Let's take a quick break here. You're with Criminal Injustice. We're talking with Robert Weidman, and we'll be back in just a minute. Stay with us. You can catch Dave on tour with his new book, A City Divided, Race, Fear, and the Law in Police Confrontations, coming up February 27th at 8 p.m. in Coral Gables, Florida at Books and Books, March 16th at 6 p.m. in Cincinnati at the Mercantile Library. In Pittsburgh on March 23rd, 5 p.m., Dave speaks at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. On March 27th, in Toledo, Ohio, he gives the Henry Hartman MD Memorial Lecture at 6 p.m. Moving into April, Dave speaks in Chicago on April 15th, 3 p.m. at the Chicago Kent College of Law. And the very next day in Baltimore, Maryland, University of Baltimore School of Law, 5 p.m. Find details on these and other upcoming tour dates at acitydivided.com. Hi, everyone. We're back on Criminal Injustice. David Harris here with you. And our guest is Robert Weidman, uh, and he's talking to us about his experiences as a person sentenced to life without parole and his release and a commutation by the governor and everything that happened in between. We've just were talking before the break about your incredible ability to step beyond some of the worst things that happened to you during your time in prison, the death of your son. And there's an essay in the book, Life Sentences, that you wrote about that experience that is almost too painful to read. It is so personal. Uh, I cannot recommend it more strongly. Everybody should read that. And of course, uh, your disappointments with the way your case was handled by the system and how you've been able to, to walk beyond that to have your own life. Uh, I want to ask you about another thing that you've talked about just briefly before we broke, and that's the Inside Out program. We had a, uh, a pair of guests uh, on our show not long ago, uh, Tyrone Wirtz and Dr. Norman Conte, both uh, involved in the Inside Out program. That was episode 86. I urge our listeners to go back and check that out. They talk about what that program is, which is basically having incarcerated people and college students take classes together within the prison walls. Uh, and I know you were involved in that when you were inside. Uh, tell us about that program and what it did uh, for you and what you did with it. Well, it was a, a joy it was a true joy. Uh, it, it kind of went on from what I talked about, trying to help people. I took it because I thought giving college students a chance to see, you know, what incarcerated people were really like, you know, not the stuff you see on TV. Right. And so you know, it was a joy to watch how, you know, everyone was a little uptight at first. And by the end of the course, you know, we were all like old friends. Uh-huh. And, you know, everyone was sad that it was over. And the joy we got just from learning. And it's just like I was saying before. When you teach somebody something, you feel better. When you learn with somebody, it creates a connection with a them. A real bond, yeah. Yeah, that, you know, you all learn this thing together, whatever it is. And uh, so I felt that, and we felt that. And, uh, you know, I got to thank Norm Conti, mm-hmm. mentioning while I'm on here. He uh, he put his heart into Inside Out. And we eventually created the think tank that you mentioned that I'm in. And, for, and it's, you know, uh, Elsinore Benue, uh And we uh, are meets every Friday morning here in Pittsburgh at Duquesne University. Yes, and now we have... Uh, all kind of people that are a part of that think tank from 
prosecutors to uh, FBI agents to police officers to uh, five of us uh, returning citizens, uh, a few students, Mm -hmm. faculty from Duquesne, professors. It's an impressive group. Yes. And, And we're trying again. To, you know, we can't change the world. You know, I don't even like to think of it in terms. We're trying to do things that we find we can do that helps other people, that might change Pittsburgh, that might change the university, that might help open up some doors for people. Absolutely. And, and that Inside Out program that has spawned the Elsinore Benu think tank, the Inside Out program has also been extended now through Norm Conte to include police recruits. And this yes. is a this is a very different thing. Yes. And you've been involved in that, too, haven't you? Oh, yes. And that was I, I'm kind of laughing and smiling because the beginning of it was really <laughs> something to have seen to been there. There's actually tapes of it somewhere that uh, Steve made for us. And. Uh, Anyway, you know, it started off with just police officers, uh-huh. and uh, it was six of them and six of us, and a lot of the guys, you know, in the prison, like quit when Norm said we were going to do this. Guy said, "Man, I don't want no parts of that. I ain't I don't learn no with police officers, no cops." Yeah, you know, and uh, and I find out later a lot of the police officers said they got the same. Story from the police, man, I ain't going in there and learn with no, you know, inmates, mm-hmm. no cons. And so in the beginning, it was tense. Rocky. Hmm. It was tense. And there was one officer that he wound up quitting because I think it was just a little too much for him. Uh-huh. I, I think he couldn't see us in another light. Yeah. And he would have to do that to learn with you. Right. And, and it was just too hard for him. And I found out later that he was, had been in homicide for a while. And so all of us had life sentences. So he had a fixed idea who we were. And he, maybe he needed it to do the job. That maybe he was so. Doing. Yeah, yeah. So, but, yeah, it was pretty tense. But yeah. it was so rewarding. And in the end, now cadets uh, from Pittsburgh Academy police have to go through this class yes every class uh, cadets and it still goes on and uh me and norm are trying to take it across the country we got some offers mm-hmm. we want to go talk to some people uh, in different states that want to do it and all along i was behind him i wanted to do this i actually thought that we need to do it with judges yeah prosecutors mm-hmm. with prison guards uh you know because it's an experience that i see now was uh helped everyone it helped us uh you know the cons it helped us it helped the police officers the cadets they come in hard to not wanting to be in there with yes. a bunch of you know cons and in the end we were all friends some of them now or the ones that took it back to the academy and said, we need to do this all the time. And now they're so involved. And, uh, you know, they get... And, and the one woman uh, officer had went through a lot of stuff and got hurt. And, uh, you know, and then still wound up, you know, I don't, I don't like to throw around the word loved, but really liked us uh-huh. and really got to know us and found us as friends. And now... She considers me a friend. I consider her a friend. So, you know, when you can learn with people, everyone gets something from that person yes. that you learn with. Absolutely. And you become friends. There's the, yeah, it almost you can't help yourself. You can't help. Yeah. And I don't think you can learn unless you get to the, that point where you You have to be open to each other. Yes. And that's, that's, a, that's a human thing that you've got to get to if you're going to learn. Yes, it really is. Let me let me bring you forward to the day of your release, July fifth, twenty nineteen. Tell us what that felt like after forty three years. Well, it's actually so hard to describe. Let me tell you, the day that I got out, 
I'd stay. All my family came over to the renewal center, and they let us sit in a room together. And I just cried and laughed and laughed mm. and cried and cried and laughed and laughed and cried. For I guess they left us in there maybe two hours because other members of the family were showing up. Uh-huh. And, you know, it was so more emotional than I could put into words. Yes. It, it, except to say, all I could do is just laugh and cry and hug people. And uh, there was, you know, maybe 15 of us in there. I kept getting up and going and sit by this one and holding on to that <laughs> one. And, you know. Family and, reunion. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and everybody, my sister was probably the most joyous of us all. Yeah. When when she found out, when she knew I was coming, she ran out on her front porch and started hollering in the street, my brother's coming home. Ah. <laughs> when I called her, when she knew, she couldn't hardly talk to me. All she could do was holler. So the joy was uh, immeasurable, beyond wow. words. Wow. What, um, one last question. You're one of the very first people uh, to get a commutation in Western Pennsylvania from a life sentence in quite a long time, maybe ever. Maybe 20, about 25 years. Okay, stand corrected. 25 years. What do you think this means to others who are serving a life sentence now? Uh, I think it opened up everyone's eyes. Not everyone, but a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people. And, uh, you know, the lieutenant governor. Fetterman. John Fetterman. Yeah, John Fetterman. Former mayor of Braddock. Yes, believes that there's a lot of guys in prison doing life sentences that need to be out of there, that are mm -hmm. just costing the taxpayers more money than it's worth. And and some, a lot of them have cases like mine where they didn't kill anybody or, you know, there's other circumstances yes. about the case that would say, do we need to keep this man uh, until we finally have to put him in the, you know, there's a... a a jail called uh, Laurel Highlands. Yes. All the lifers say that's where they send the lifers to die. And the longer you stay, you know, at the end you start charging the state a million dollars. It's like 42000 to keep a guy in prison. But as men age and get older, they need, they care. need all kind of care and mm -hmm. all kind of operations. And, all, and it can get up to a million dollars per man. And why are we keeping... Old people that can't get up and run can, you know, that, that really are harmless, who are the uh, best risk to never come back. You bet. Lifers are the best risk. Yeah. We have the, the ones that have gotten out is the lowest recidivism rate. It's one, you know, it's, it's in the single digits. Yes. And that's over a long period of time, over the last 50 years. And and, the, you know, older men just don't commit crimes. Crime is a young man's game. It's a game. young man's game. It's a young man's People game. People age out, yes. And, and they've aged out. And a lot of them have done some of the same stuff I've done and even more. Mm -hmm. And some of their cases, you know, I, I have a, a really, really good friend of mine who a guy took him, to, asking him to go take him to pick up a car. He rode him. He said, let's stop at this supermarket. He goes in the supermarket and robs the place and kills the butcher in the back. My buddy runs in to see what happening, what's happening, and the guy's running out with a gun in his hand saying, come on, let's go, let's go. Now, he was about my age at that time, 25, 6 years mm -hmm. old. He panics, he runs. Right. He's doing a life sentence. He has now oh. 44 years in. Yeah. He's went to school. He's done everything. And he's still, how do you need this man still to be in prison? He's 60, no, he's 70 years old now. Yeah. Uh, what are you holding him for? Yeah. yeah. Uh, how did he do all this time for that kind of crime? And there's other cases I could mention. Sure. But, and John Fetterman, uh, as lieutenant governor, sits on the board that makes yes. these decisions. And he, his presence seems to have made a big difference. And yes, it has. I feel very glad that it seems to have made that difference in your case, too. Yes, it did. Yeah. Yes, it did. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you, and I thank you for being a guest here. Thank you. Thank All right. You. That is Robert Weidman. He is a formerly incarcerated person 
whose life without parole sentence was commuted after 43 years. He's a longtime mentor, teacher, uh, and now one of the authors of Life Sentences, writing from inside an American prison. Stick around for more of Lawyers Behaving Badly. Let's wind it up as we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And on this edition, it's a special day because we're going to hand out an award, a Lifetime Achievement Award for superior work as a lawyer behaving badly. Yes, sometimes you just have to sit back and admire a breathtaking body of work when you see it, and that's what we're doing here today. The Lawyers Behaving Badly Lifetime Achievement Award this year goes to, drumroll please, Ken Starr. Yes, listeners, Ken Starr, our former Solicitor General of the United States, former U.S. Court of Appeals judge, former independent counsel in the investigation and impeachment of President Bill Clinton, and now, unforgettably, lawyer for President Trump in Trump's impeachment trial, arguing against impeachment. Longtime listeners might wonder here, Ken Starr? What about all those other lawyers behaving badly who've stolen, lied, cheated clients that we have talked about before? What about those lawyers with the porn-watching extortion scheme? All true, folks. Lots of bad lawyers' behavior out there, but Ken Starr, in his own way, tops them all. Those of you who have heard me uh, comment before on Mr. Starr and his recent commentaries in the media know that Starr's public statements, as 2019 wore on, seemed to display a certain unknowing irony. Here was the man who'd been out of the public eye for a long time after going over the top on the Clinton impeachment, and then more recently flaming out spectacularly as president of Baylor University in a scandal in which he and the university seem not to care at all about a rash of sexual assaults and misbehavior by members of the football team, the fact that he would start talking in public again at all made me wonder, was his thirst for the spotlight really that strong? But when he signed on as one of the president's impeachment lawyers to argue that the president should not be impeached, well, I said, this I have got to see. Now, don't get me wrong. Lawyers should not be criticized for representing any particular client. And I mean any client. There should be no guilt by association. And I'm saying nothing here about the impeachment trial's conclusion. But let's remember Mr. Starr isn't just some high-profile lawyer. He's the lawyer who served as independent counsel hunting Bill Clinton and then got the House to impeach Clinton over the fact that Clinton lied in a sworn deposition in a civil case about whether he had sex outside of his marriage. Is that a crime? Well, lying under oath can be charged as perjury, so yes. But how big a deal is that? Well, to Mr. Starr, a very big deal indeed. He blew it up into the biggest deal there could be and pursued it like Javert in Les Mis. Clinton lied under oath. He must be removed from office. Nothing less will do. It's a high crime. Uh, well, so uh, now uh, President Trump has been accused of attempting to get the government of Ukraine, that would be a foreign government, to produce dirt or at least an announcement of an investigation into possible dirt in an effort to damage a political opponent and doing this by withholding duly appropriated funds destined to help that foreign government, a United States ally, from military attack by Russia. This isn't lying about oral sex. These accusations are about getting help from a foreign power in an election. An election, the heart of the democratic process, by threatening to withhold desperately needed military aid. 
Now, whether you think President Trump should be removed from office for that or not, I will leave to you. What does Ken Starr think about it? Well, he's been thinking a lot about impeachment, it turns out. Here is what Ken Starr said on the Senate floor. Like war, impeachment is hell. Or at least presidential impeachment is hell. Those of us who lived through the Clinton impeachment, including members of this body, full well understand that a presidential impeachment is tantamount to domestic war, albeit thankfully protected by our beloved First Amendment, a war of words and a war of ideas. But it's filled with acrimony and it divides the country like nothing else. Those of us who lived through the Clinton impeachment understand that in a deep and personal way. You got that? Impeachment is hell. It divides the country. It leaves everything filled with acrimony. And he understands it in a, quote, deep and personal way, close quote, from the guy who brought the country impeachment for lying about adulterous oral sex the man who did more than any other single individual to lower the bar on impeachment in the history of the United States, this same man says, no, no, it's just too much. It's too damaging. It's too hard for the country. For sheer hypocrisy alone, Ken Starr deserves this award. But when you add a complete lack of self-awareness of his own role in bringing us to this point, and of course, no apology or acceptance of responsibility for doing that, just, oh, well, I lived through that terrible time, too. I'm just another victim. Well, like I said breathtaking. He seems to have no idea how colossally ridiculous all of this makes him look, with hour after hour of videotape out there from the 90s with him saying basically just the opposite. So may I present our Lawyers Behaving Badly Lifetime Achievement Award to Ken Starr. We may never be able to give this award again because Ken Starr has just set the bar too high. That's it for this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly Special Lifetime Achievement Award. And that's it for this episode of Criminal Injustice. Remember to subscribe to Criminal Injustice so you can always get us in your favorite podcast app every time and never miss an episode or our news bonuses or another story of lawyers behaving badly. Remember, we're now listener-supported, so please go to patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rollerson. Find show notes and past episodes at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.